Hello again and welcome. Plant food. Fertilizing can be a little bit tricky. Sometimes you don't know what to give your plants, uh, whether they should have a high N or a high P or a high K. Well, in today's edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, we're going to talk about feeding plants, but not with fertilizer at all. We're going to talk about feeding them with bugs, because these are carnivorous plants with Jason Austin, right now on Ken Drew's Real Dirt. Hello and welcome again. If you've got a sunny spot, whether that's a rooftop or a balcony, or mm, I shouldn't say a fire escape, maybe if you're below the sixth floor, a fire escape in a city, but really sunny because we're going to talk about plants that live in a moist medium all year round. These are marginal plants, waterside plants, and they just happen to be carnivorous. They eat bugs. They eat insects. And we're talking about Saracenia mostly, but we'll talk about sundews and Venus flytraps. But some of the remarkable new hybrids that are coming on the market that are actually pretty easy to grow. So join me now with my guest, Jason Austin of Rare Fine Nursery. And we're going to learn more about growing Saracenia, growing pitcher plants at home, in your garden, in sun, in containers. There are several trends in American gardening today, principally growing food, but for around 15 years a small interest has been growing uh, for trying to grow carnivorous plants that is really turning into, well I shouldn't say a fad, but uh, maybe a trend. And my guest today is Jason Austin. He is the head grower and greenhouse manager at Rare Fine Nursery in central New Jersey. He's been growing hardy carnivorous plants since 1999. I think there's a lot of reasons people are looking at carnivorous plants. Hello, Jason. How you doing, Ken? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, you know, of course, there's the there's always been the attraction of a plant that's going to eat somebody. And uh, people have, unfortunately, for years... Uh, bought Venus flytraps at gift shops and those poor things die and for a long time they were wild collected. I don't think that's going on so much anymore but we're not talking about those kinds of oddities. We're talking about gardening, real gardening and gardening with plants that just happen to get nutrition in unusual ways. And I wonder if you could maybe where would you begin when you talk to people about carnivorous plants, where do you start? Well, usually everybody wonders why carnivorous plants are actually carnivorous. And that is uh, one of the you know most important things to explain to people is sort of how their evolution as, as bug eaters came about. And essentially, carnivorous plants are really herbaceous perennials that have modified leaves that actually lure and trap insects. And the whole need for the luring and the trapping of the insects is that they are growing in these extremely acidic, nutrient-poor bogs and savannas. And when there's no available nutrient for these plants, they were just saying, geez, how in the world am I going to feed myself, get fertilizer to maintain all of the, you know, functional things that I'm doing here. So what these plants have done is they've evolved these these leaves. In the case of the pitcher plant, it's a hollow tube that the insects will fall into and be digested. Or if you have a Venus flytrap or a sundew, you have other 
modified leaves that will actually are are active traps. In the case of the fly trap, that'll snap shut over a bug, or the sundew will actually close some of its sticky glands over insects that get trapped on it. So you have these evolutions of these these plants that have allowed them to sustain themselves in these nutrient-poor bogs. So that's sort of the first thing that I like to explain to people about their their kind of growing conditions where they're situated in the wild and and sort of what their their whole carnivorous tendencies are. Well, maybe that's the biggest fascination with growing carnivorous plants, but something that people probably don't know, uh, perhaps with the exception of the sundews and the Venus flytraps, these plants are beautiful. They have beautiful leaves, modified leaves into pitchers, in the case of the Saracenia, and flowers too, remarkable flowers. Oh yeah, the flower of the Saracenia especially is, is unbelievably beautiful. There are two types, there's a yellow and then a maroon, and then when you have some of the hybrids, you, you get all kinds of wonderful combinations of yellow sepals and red petals, and in some cases you actually can get orange, almost papaya-like flowers, but that takes a few generations of crossing and back crossing. But if you get a particular hybrid with some orangey flowers, you really have, have locked in on something neat. Well, I think that's when I started recognizing or noticing that more people were trying to grow the Saracenia, especially, was when people were starting to hybridize them. Uh, and I, I wonder if there's a kind of a hybrid vigor thing involved that makes these plants perhaps easier to grow. Oh, for sure. Hybrid vigor is definitely something that happens just about every time we are, are producing some of these intentional crosses and hybrids that were grown here at Rare Find. There's been a few plants over the years that I've bought from, from other hybridizers that are unbelievably vigorous. There's a particularly beautiful Saracenia called Green Monster <laughs> that is a primary hybrid of Saracenia minor and Saracenia leucophila, and that plant is so, so vigorous. Saracenia actually grow from a long rhizome, similar to a, an acorus or an iris, so they will grow, these rhizomes will get so massive that this plant is easily divisible at a young age. And we're finding that some of the other seed-grown hybrids as well show so much vigor that I'm getting blooming-sized saleable plants in half the time the traditional carnivorous plant literature will tell you. So I, I feel like we've we've achieved some interesting breakthroughs in, in the commercial production of these with, with some of these hybrids. So it's it's been kind of a neat learning experience the past few years doing it here at Rarefind. Well, you've mentioned a lot of things. You mentioned acidic soil or acidic medium, and you've mentioned, uh, just now you mentioned one of the parents is Leucophila. And we should describe some of these plants too, but Leucophila, is that a southern species? Is that a hardy species? It is actually a southern species. Its range consists of portions of the Florida panhandle, which when some people learn this, they say, well, geez, I can never grow this plant in New Jersey, which is not true at all. I have had success in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, Baltimore, Maryland, New Jersey, coastal New Jersey, and, and in, inland here in central New Jersey with all eight of the pitcher plant species really outdoors. And I think even though some of these plants, their range is Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, 
South Carolina along the, the coast there, they still will grow outside into zone five. So that makes all of them just about do very well for anyone, I think, really south of the Catskills hmm. and sort of south of, of upstate New York or lower upstate New York anyway. Well, some people may recognize uh, the Saracenia leucophila because it, it was used as, well, it's probably still used as a cut flower. Um, you would buy bunches of them, and they were wild collected. I don't know if that's still going on. Do you know? I don't think that it's still going on because there's just not enough wild populations of those plants any longer. The leucophilus for sure is a great cut tube, and I I have friends that, are growing those, and they get shipped up to the Chelsea Flower Market in um, Manhattan, and they're they're an absolutely wonderful cut flower, and they persist really long in a vase. And I don't feel like there's a tremendous amount of collection pressure anymore. Again, because most of the sites where they're occurring in the wild are protected by the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy, in conjunction with the International Carnivorous Plant Society, and even the Sierra Club to some extent have really worked hard to acquire a lot of the private land that these plants are growing on. So there's still a few incidences of, of collecting, and I, but I think largely the, the tubes you're going to see on the market are greenhouse grown. Well, when you talk about growing the plants and growing the, the hybrids and everything, uh, are you, you're not just planting those in the garden bed or in a perennial garden. You, you need really specific situations, especially prepared sites, unless you happen to have a bog in the backyard. But can you tell me what a homemade bog might for Saracenia might be like? Well, what we're doing and, and, and finding that we're having the most success success with is drained plastic containers and what we're able to do is we're able to actually make what we're calling a mini bog or a mini bog garden and we're we're essentially recreating the exact conditions that these plants would grow in in the wild in anything from a 16 to a 30 inch container that's between 8 to 12 inches in depth and by using the right exact soil and that is able to really recreate the wet, nutrient-poor, acidic conditions that they grow in. So the mini bog, if you will, has been a breakthrough, and especially finding the right type of, of plastic container. Over the years, I've grown them in really nice glazed pots and even terracotta to some extent, but you run the huge risk of breaking them each winter, and when you spend a lot of money on a really nice cobalt blue glazed container, you don't want it frozen into shards when you when you uncover it in April. So these plastic containers that we're using are a wonderful way to grow these plants, and the, the pots are indestructible, and the plants really respond well in the springtime with minimal outdoor protection. And I think that that, that has been a, a huge leap forward in what we were doing, let's say, 10 years ago versus where we, where we are now with these. And I have a wonderful collection of, of small 12 to 15 inch plastic pots and a few glazed pots. I, I, I cheat sometimes with my greenhouse, <laughs> but uh, they, they will overwinter on the side of my garage with some pine needles and I dig them out every spring and, and there they are. So it allows people with minimal space and a little bit of sunlight to have 
a bog garden, whereas most people think of a bog as this giant thing that's existing in the wild. This enables even people in an apartment in the city to get some sun to be able to grow a small little collection of, of pitcher plants and, and some companion species that would grow with them, and you have your own little mini bog. So you're not talking about burying these containers in the ground. You're talking about above ground, not even that large containers, and I guess they freeze solid pretty much and go through the winter and the plants are sur- do survive. I'm speaking with Jason Austin. He's the head grower and greenhouse manager at Rare Find, which is a New Jersey nursery, famous for their rhododendrons, but now famous also for pitcher plants. We'll be right back. Thank you for staying with us. It's Ken Drews. You're listening to Ken Drews Real Dirt, The Garden Show. My guest today is Jason Austin. He's the head grower and greenhouse manager at Rare Find, a nursery in New Jersey, and he's been growing hardy carnivorous plants since 1999, and now we're discovering that he's growing them in mini bogs in containers above ground, and they they stay that way over winter. It, it's it, Really, it's exciting. I want to know what's in those containers, Jason. Well, that's a very good question. Again, we we were discussing their their tolerance of extremely moist acid soils. So, really, when you break that down on the simplest level, they're growing in peat. They're growing in these. You know, what a bog is is a, a a sphagnous wetland, which is decomposed sphagnum moss that just gets packed down and packed down and packed down. And essentially, that is peat moss that's used in just about every container mixture in, in horticulture these days, and they're growing in a mixture of peat moss and sand. Now, in some cases, sand is really heavy, especially in nursery pots, and that works well for magnolias and things when they don't blow over, but for some of these miniature bogs, having sand in them creates a bit of a weight problem, especially if you have a 75-year-old woman that wants a little miniature bog, she's not going to be able to pick it up. So we've actually ended up on using horticultural perlite, which weighs next to nothing and is pretty much a great substitute for sand. But essentially in the wild, you would have some sort of mixture, here in the Pine Barrens especially, of peat moss and sand. But we found that peat moss and perlite works equally as well with the the perlite substituting for the sand. And at the end of the day, I think if you didn't have either of those ingredients, if you bought baled peat moss from any garden center and wet that, that would be your exact media for growing all of these plants, from the carnivorous ones all the way through to the swamp pinks and the orchids and everything that grows in association with them. Well, I have a couple of questions. I would like to know the percentage of perlite to peat moss, and also, do these containers have drainage holes? Uh, I'm thinking it's, I used to say it's about 80% peat, 20% perlite. It's anymore, it's about 90, 10, 90% peat, 10% perlite. You don't, with the perlite, you don't want a lot of it to show. So in some cases, I end up having a decent mix of that, and then the top two inches of the soil will be straight peat moss because the perlite tends to wiggle its way to the top and look like little hailstones in the top of your mm. bog sometimes. But uh, the uh, containers themselves do have drainage. The first, I bet, three or four years of growing carnivorous plants, we had these 
really large, unattractive plastic containers from Home Depot that had no drainage. And we were growing these things, and then after a big rain, you'd have to come out and tip all the pots over and drain off all the water. And I guess in 2004, when I moved to New Jersey, I had an experience where all of my pots were being overwintered under this massive cluster of oak leaves and pine bows and pine needles and different things to protect them on the side of my house. Unbeknownst to me, there was three inches of standing water in these all winter. Hmm. And the following spring, I uncovered them to find 100% death, completely anaerobic situation with no oxygen in the soil and just rotten, dead Saracenia and, and sundew. And that was probably one of my first real learning experiences with these plants is that despite their need for extremely moist soil all the time, they need well-drained soil, which mm. seems insane to say, well, you need it to be super wet, but you need good drainage. But if you were to look at the roots of a fresh Saracenia, if you were to dig it up and bare root it, the little hairs all over the roots really are what is in that soil looking for oxygen and, and helping the plant. And so I think that allowing for some drainage allows little bits of oxygen to creep back into the soil, which really, really makes a huge difference. And once we stopped, or once we unplugged the, the <laughs> drains on these pots, we really started to see a tremendous difference in the growth rates of these. They, they did well before, and I'll still grow a few Venus flytraps in undrained containers, but I really feel like drainage is, is, is a huge, huge thing. And what we're doing, though, it's not your typical three-quarter inch to an inch drain hole in these pots. I'm doing what I call the salt shaker, where I'll do four tiny holes in a square and then one in the center of the pot. And these drain holes are as thin as pencil lead. So what actually happens mm. is the water slowly, slowly drips out of them, which is perfect. Now, you talked about how these plants have adapted over years to deal with a, a medium that has n virtually no nutrition. So I guess you don't fertilize these plants. No, there's really no need to fertilize them. They're they do just fine collecting their own bugs. Some people ask, well, geez, if, if I don't feel like my plants are going to be able to collect that many insects, is that going to be a problem? Should I fertilize them? Can I fertilize them? You know, Can I feed them hamburger? And <laughs> I say no, only veggie burgers. But they, you really don't need to feed them. They, they do just fine on their own. Even if they didn't catch an insect at all, I still would think that they would do just fine through the regular photosynthesis and the other sort of physiological things that are going on with, with these plants. But, you know, dropping some beetles that they hit your screen and fall upside down on your deck is, is totally doable. But as far as any sort of commercial fertilizer or anything like that, the, the high salt concentrations in a lot of these fertilizers are really a no-no for the pitcher plants. They will surely burn the leaves right up. And in the case of the hollow tube saracenia, any sort of fertilizer water that might happen to get into these tubes would really, really be detrimental to them. The, the, the salts are like 
poison. You know, they, mm. they really will just cook the, the pitcher plants. And I've found that even in commercial production of them in the nursery, we, we run into to that too. Like, you know what, you know, I accidentally uh, did some Peters 2177 on your pitcher plants and it's like, uh-oh, you know, and they'll, they'll get, you know, in some cases they'll, they'll bounce back from that. But, you know, we've had a couple of accidental fertilizations of some of the younger pitcher plants here at the nursery and that, that hasn't really helped them at all. So I'm encouraging everyone to not use any sort of fertilizer on them. And I think that they do just fine, you know, even without catching a tremendous amount of insects. Now, if it, if it doesn't rain and you think that your medium is starting to dry out, um, what do you use for a water source? You can't just use your tap water necessarily, especially, I guess, if it has chlorine and my water is very alkaline. So what would, what would you use to water them? Well, rain barrels are, you know, certainly becoming more and more popular anymore. Um, rainwater obviously would be the ideal source. Distilled water would be a would be a close second for sure, but that means you have to go out and buy it. Another option is uh, water from your your humidifier. If anyone's mm. got sort of a damp basement or something, they're running a humidifier. You can use that water. One of the uh, things about public water, like you said, is that they tend to have chlorine in them or tend to be a bit alkaline. The chlorine issue is sort of one that what we're telling people anymore is that chlorine is essentially a, a, a gas and it's mm -hmm. going to evaporate. So if you fill up a couple of watering cans with your public water and you feel like it's not overly alkaline, you know, it is, it's a good idea to have your water tested just for your own knowledge it's not really like something you don't have to buy a pitcher plant and run out and have your water tested immediately i think some people you know feel like oh geez that's too much work you know but i think that you can let the chlorine evaporate from your your public tap water and and do just fine with watering it uh, well water certainly if you have a well here in new jersey it's generally acidic irony water especially in the pine barrens that that works very very well but I haven't run into significant water problems. Uh, when I was living in one part of New Jersey near Asbury Park, we had a lot of chlorine in our water. And when I drank the water, it tasted like a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I definitely can't use this on the fisher plants. Well, I did. And, it, you know, like I, I did the whole trick, like I just described, of letting it evaporate, you know, consistently. And it didn't seem to be too much of a problem. I think that it's better to be safe than sorry with the water. Uh, I was just sort of being lazy by not going and getting <laughs> rainwater or I had no humidifier. And I was like, I'm not buying distilled water. But it's, it's again, better to be safe than sorry with the water. And I think that in the end, the plants will probably do better for the novice carnivorous plant grower if you, you know, you take some some extra steps to get them the right kind of water. Well, I think with our talk about Saracenia, Saracenia flava, Saracenia purpurea, Saracenia rubra, Leucophila, we've just begun. We just touched the surface, and I hope that people go to the website to see pictures of some of these incredible carnivorous plants. It's really hard to talk about them over the radio to not see what they look like, and it it's such a good idea and fun and of course children will be thrilled by this and yeah i guess the hardest thing with a kid is to stop the kid from putting 
as you said, hamburger and 200 beetles in those pools inside the the modified leaves because that's the tendency. I would think you want to feed that plant every day, (laughs) and you really can't. And I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. I've been speaking with Jason Austin, the head grower and greenhouse manager at Rare Find Nursery in New Jersey. And uh, we'll have to talk about this again. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm going out today and starting. (laughs) I'm I'm making my own bog in a container. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye for now. I can't wait to try growing carnivorous plants in above ground containers in weatherproof containers that won't crack in the winter won't freeze solid i'll be filling them with the proper medium and getting some of those plants and trying them myself because they are gorgeous and interesting with beautiful flowers that we rarely ever get to see tune in next week for another edition of ken drew's real dirt the garden show 